They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. Over 400,000 Americans died during World War II. Nearly 300,000 of those were in combat, not taking into account the lives lost from American allies as well across Europe and the Pacific. My guests today, through their father's service during the Second World War, have a connection to tens of thousands lost in battle. And years and years later, they walked in their father's footsteps. They take us on that journey on today's Memorial Day episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast. Jim and John Bailey, welcome to Pick Up the Six Podcast. Thank you. Thank it's you. Good to be here. Man, I'm excited to talk to you guys uh, today. Uh, excited to have this conversation to dig into your father's extensive and rich military history and really an important story, his role, critically important. Um, but before we do that, uh, just know how grateful we are that you guys would take time out of your days to to share that story. And I know it's important to both of you, given the amount of research and where your journeys have taken you over the years. So first and foremost, guys, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Well, uh, our father, Fred Bailey, was born in Western Pennsylvania. Uh, the Baileys were coal miners. They had come over from England in the 1800s. And we don't know a whole lot about dad's early, early years, but we know after he graduated from high school in, Western, in Greensburg, PA, he made his way to Michigan he went to Flint, Michigan, and he attended mortuary school, and he worked at the GM auto plant there. And he became a licensed funeral director while in Michigan. And in 1941, he was drafted into the Army. Uh, the military was building up their forces, and he was drafted. And he was initially into the quartermaster corps. He was into supplies. There was even a time when he was in a mule outfit. The military was expecting that there would not be enough trucks and mechanized vehicles in the, for the war in Europe, that they would have to be using mules for transport. Uh, that turned out to actually not be the case. A few mules were used in Italy and then in Southeast Asia. But for the war in Europe, there were enough mecha mechanized vehicles. Mm, that's interesting. Um, I mean, it's an incredible history of, first of all, how the family gets here. And I mean, blue collar, hard working uh, kind of family. It's a big reason, gentlemen, why we call them the greatest generation. And we say things like they don't make them like that anymore, just because of what that upbringing must have been like. John, how much did he uh, did he talk about the upbringing? We, we'll talk about his time in service, those years between 1941 and 1945, and the role he played. He was assigned to the 9th Army Headquarters during those years, ultimately awarded the Bronze Star. So we're going to talk about how all that happened. But when you guys were kids growing up and, and when he'd share stories, I mean, how, how much did he talk about those early days and, and what it was like? He really didn't talk a lot about it. Uh, he actually was born in South Fork, Pennsylvania. 
Um, South Fork, Pennsylvania is where the dam was located that broke, that flooded Johnstown uh, for the great Johnstown flood. So, you know, um, I know he had, you know, what, eight brothers and sisters, I think, total in the family. Um, some had died, you know, at very young ages, some, you know, even as, as very young infants and others, you know, 10, 11 years old range. But he never really talked a whole lot about that. Uh, we went out there a few times, visited the family cemetery, and he showed me uh, where he was born. Uh, I know uh, he joined the Masonic Order uh, in Greensburg, and I knew that he always remained a member of the Greensburg Lodge. And uh, I joined the Masonic Order here in Hanover uh, when I was old enough, and I um, ended up actually taking him to a lodge meeting in Greensburg probably when he was in his mid eighties and we really had a good time. Mm, we think that life was hard. I believe that the, the coal environment, the business, it was a hard scrabble life for the family. Uh, we think that our grandfather was a shopkeeper in a mine, in one of the uh, mine stores and they lived in various places uh, in Western PA, settling in the Johnstown South, South Fork area. But I, I think it was a hard life. And, and I just, although dad never really talked about it, I'm supposing that after high school, he wanted something else for his life. He wanted to escape the, uh, the coal mines. So go, he went to Michigan and he saw an opportunity to work in the GM plant. He took a few chemistry courses at Flint Junior College and went to work for a funeral director and got his funeral director and, and embalmer's license in Michigan. And then he was drafted into World War II in 1941. So and here we he, sit, gentlemen, uh, this episode uh, released on Memorial Day. And, and I wanted to have this conversation with you men specifically on Memorial Day as we take time today to really with intentionality pause and remember the thousands and thousands of American heroes who laid down their life for freedom and liberty across the globe. And your father's story interweaves with many of those during World War II. So guys, take me up to 1941. And his background becomes very serviceable and a need for what he will do, not just for the United States Army, but really for the entire United States military and many of our allies. So guys, take me up to 1941 and what he is tasked with and asked to do in the Army during World War II. Well, maybe before Jim starts with that, I wanted to mention, I know he told me um, he went into the Army down in the Baltimore area. I'm not certain uh, what what military installation it was, but in the he was bused um, from Greensburg down, down to the Baltimore area. And I know he told me that he never went through basic training due to some type of an error, I guess because they were bringing so many men in. And his first day in the army, they did a forced march from Baltimore to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, he said he told me he thought he was going to die. And his brother, uh, who was a school teacher uh, in York at the time at York High, uh, brought him uh, some food and some water, cool water. And they were just sleeping out in the field under some trees and brought him a little bit of nourishment that he could rest up to walk back to Baltimore, you know, either the next day or a couple of days later. So I'll turn it over to Jim now with the early with the early days in the U.S. military. Sure. So dad was in, in several units. He was in the, the mule outfit in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He was there for a bit. Then he was transferred to Abilene, Texas, uh, Camp Barkley at the time. And he was a hospital supply sergeant. 
and he was feeling he was just being underutilized. We have a letter that he wrote to his commanding officer looking for a different assignment. And he decided to enter the officer corps. So he made application to be what they called a 90 day wonder. So he went to officer candidate school in Camp Lee, Virginia. So after 90 days, he was given his butter bar, his uh, gold lieutenant bar. And he was there for a while. And I don't recall the exact, all what happened during all those years, but that's when, about the time when the Ninth Army, what became the Ninth Army was getting organized and he was given orders to go to England. And the Ninth Army was being assembled in England ready for the invasion of Europe. And it was at that time when uh, I suppose they realized that he was a funeral director and a licensed embalmer and he had had experience in the Quartermaster Corps, and that's where the uh, Graves Registration Group was. It was under the Quartermaster Corps. So he became a, an embalmer, a, what we would call a mortician today, but they were called embalmers, uh, embalmers then. And the Ninth Army came into, went from England and landed uh, at Omaha Beach uh, we thought, John, it was what, in probably August. July? Uh, it was August, August the 8th. It would have been in August of 1944. And the 9th Army was given orders to head west in France. And they traveled west. They needed to evict the Germans. They had encircled the town of Brest. That's where the Germans had built these huge submarine pens, these massive concrete structures to hide and protect their submarine fleet on the western coast of France. So they, the Ninth Army traveled, they evicted the Germans, and after their victory in Brest, then the Ninth Army headed east, and they traveled across northern France into Holland, and eventually Belgium, Luxembourg, and then into Germany. So I wanted to mention that, you know, Dad had told us that and he never talked a whole lot about it, but he just did little snippets here and there. And then the one thing he always stated to, to me, and I would assume to Jim, he always said war was too terrible to remember. Mm. So uh, he, he always said that. But when they got to Great Britain, um, they were the 8th Army. And General Montgomery's Army was the 8th Army. So they were, they were renamed the 9th Army mm. under General Simpson. And General Simpson was his general that, that, he, that he worked for. And uh, initially, uh, for all the casualties that they had, they took those casualties and brought them back uh, across the English Channel, back over to Great Britain, and they established cemeteries in, in Great Britain. So once they, you know, got enough soldiers inland after D-Day, uh, then they started to establish graveyards in uh, various countries going all the way across Europe. And uh, I know, you know, Jim had spoke. You know, you know, not only were is it for the Americans and the Allies, but also the Germans, because the Germans left their dead. You know, they were trying to save their own skins. They didn't really, you know, uh, care about, you know, who was wounded and who was dying or who was dead. And uh, we had to, you know, establish German cemeteries. And many times they were uh, an annex of an American cemetery. They wouldn't bury them. Um, you know, right, right there, but they would have an annex kind of next door to the American cemetery. And um, I'm going to let Jim speak a little bit about 
Um, Dad had always told us that, you know, he gave the order to begin um, the work in an American cemetery, and we were a little uncertain. Um, and then, you know, it led up to Jim and I taking a trip um, in uh, July of 2014. And uh, the reason we did that is we wanted to follow our father's footsteps through World War II, because when he passed away, he had a copy of his orders that he had in his briefcase. And uh, I started reading through those. I showed them to Jim. He read through them. And a couple of years later, he passed away in 2005. Um, you know, nine years later, we said, you know, we really need to go to Europe. We need to follow dad's footsteps. And, you know, we kind of bring our mother into there because our father met our mother, which we'll talk about a little bit later in the story. And um, over in Europe after the war was over. But I remember Jim stated that, um, you know, he was in supply in Texas and he told me that he wrote a letter to his commanding officer and he stated in the letter that he had far greater talents to provide to his country than being a supply sergeant. And when we got his, his orders, it wasn't in there, but I wrote to the military for more information, which I got from the U.S. Army from their archives. Yeah, we and, have that letter. and lo and behold, there was a letter written in there, almost word for word, the way he had written that 75 years before. It was incredible. And we had, um, we know, had often asked, pardon me, Jim? No, I said, we had often asked Dad about his World War II experience. And he said very little. He would mention that, uh, the Ninth Army had gone to, to Brest and liberated the submarine pens, and then they went across Europe to the Elbe River. And that's really all he said, at least to me. Yeah. And as John mentioned, after, when he died, under the bed in Florida, in his briefcase, was his complete Army 201 file. All of his papers, it was inches thick. His pay records, his pay stubs, all of his orders, in, in the US and to Europe and across Germany. So and in Europe, everything he had was all in there. Mm -hmm. So I took it all apart and put everything in chronological order. So, and then we created a chronology from 1941 all the way through, because he stayed in Europe even after the war and worked as a, a funeral director and embalmer mm -hmm for the dead all the way up through 1948 as a civilian. So that's what sets up the ability for you guys in 2014 yes. to be able to take this incredible journey. I, I want to talk about that, but before we get there, Jim, I want to lean in a little bit in on, because you have to kind of figure it out through research and study and looking through these orders since he kept a lot of that close to the vest and we can understand why. What he was tasked with doing, what their job to do was a heavy burden um, because those heroes fell in foreign land. They did not get to physically come home all the time. There weren't medevacs to pull them out. It was a different wartime era and they had to be taken care of and laid to rest. So men, to the extent that you were able to learn, research, put together what his actual job was during all that. Before we get to the journey, can we go in a little bit deeper as to what 
they were actually doing as they moved from battleground to battleground during those years? Well, the important job was to, honestly, to, to clear the dead from the battlefield. They would, they would quickly clear the dead. They took them back to an assembly area. They would identify the bodies. They would collect all the personal effects and they would bury them in temporary graves because there were no permanent cemeteries yet. They weren't established until the late 40s and even the 1950s, the permanent cemeteries. And they would bury them in whatever they had, like mostly just mattress covers. There were no coffins, but they, they quickly swept the battlefield because they didn't want the advancing soldiers to be walking over the bodies of their fallen comrades. I know that, that, that was in, go yeah, ahead, Ron. Yeah, I know your father didn't talk about it a lot, but just let's take a minute there, just a moment, just to, to reflect on what a heavy task that was. Go ahead, Jim, please. It, it was truly horrific. We have, through John's help, we've uncovered a number of videos that we've seen of the uh, graves registration folks and of their identifying the bodies. Often there were body parts. In the winter, they were frozen. Uh, it, it was truly horrific that they had to I, do their best to identify the fallen guys, uh, collect their effects, notify the families. And when they buried them, they had to identify all the, all the places where they were buried. Each one got a temporary cross. And dad was in the headquarters unit. So I, I don't believe he was directly involved in caring for and carrying the bodies, but he was the one that he had folks underneath him in, in the various graves registration companies who did that work. Yeah, I know that, you know, he, he was promoted to captain. And, and I know I asked him one time, you know, about how fast he went from first lieutenant to second lieutenant to captain. Very quick. And, and he just kind of smirked or grinned and he said, as fast as they were mowing them down over there, they were looking for anybody to hang bars on. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, because they were, you know, the, the German snipers were always trying to shoot the officers. You know, that's what they were looking for, any officers they could get. But, um, you know, another thing that you got to realize is there was no mechanized machinery to speak of. And all of these graves were dug dug by hand. Dug by hand. And, and the majority of them, uh, because there was still segregation at that time, unfortunately, uh, in the U.S. military, and they mainly used black soldiers to do most of the, the excavating of the graves. And, uh, you know, they were, uh, and, and I know I read about this, but I think on a good day, they could probably dig four graves. Is that what I what we read in that book, Jim? Four or five graves in a day? No, I, don't I don't remember specifically. Yeah, per, per person, yes. Yeah, per person. I mean, that's a lot. I mean, when you're digging, you know, a grave six feet deep, three feet wide, six feet long, uh, you know, and you're digging those and, you know, rain, sleet, snow, frozen ground, that, that's, that's pretty, you know, that's yeoman's work there. And I have a lot of admiration for those folks that really got stuck with that. And another thing that, um, you know, we found is uh, through our research that, you know, they always had the smell of death, you know, every time, because sometimes these bodies would lay for a day or two and they were bringing them back, you know, and it might be a day till they could get them buried. And they just always, they had trucks with trailers, like a utility trailer in, 
they just pile them up. But like Jim said, a lot of them were frozen. And, you know, they were so frozen, they had to cut their clothes off of them because their clothes were wet and soaked and they were frozen solid. They had a very difficult time, uh, you know, trying to, to, you know, get their, you know, get their clothes off of them, try to get all their personal effects that were frozen in their pockets because they had pictures, they had money, they had wedding rings, they had a wide variety of things. And and the book that we we read that mentioned our father in um, about the American Cemetery in Margaret in Holland um, there was 17,000 American allied soldiers buried just in that one cemetery. They said that every penny from every soldier was fully accounted for and forwarded home to their families at wow. the end of the war. Wow. The most important piece of research that we uncovered was, was dad's role in the establishment of the American military cemetery in Margraten Holland in the, the Netherlands. The ninth army had, quickly advanced across France. They liberated the Limburg area of uh, Holland, what's, uh, what's now the Netherlands called Holland. And that became kind of a home base for the Ninth Army for a while. And the soldiers uh, barracks there, they lived with the, the people of Holland in the community. And so there was a group that stayed there but then the rest of the Ninth Army kept advancing east through Holland, through Belgium, and well into Germany. And the soldiers kept dying and they kept bringing them back. And they brought them back by the thousands from Germany. And dad had promised to, uh, in his words, he said, uh, he promised to the old man, which was General Simpson, that no American soldier would be buried in German soil. So they were carried back 400 miles from the far eastern front in Germany, all the way back to Margraten, Holland. And that's where the military cemetery was established. And at first it was just temporary and then it became permanent. And I think at the height there was 22,000 or 23,000 total soldiers buried there. That included Australians, Canadians, Brits, there was a small section off to the side of Germans. They were later moved. And that later became the uh, American cemetery. And it was dad that helped pick the location for the cemetery. And they had to build a road and it was in the winter and it was muddy. They actually cut trees out of the forest and they built what they called a corduroy road. They had been hauling in stones and gravel and they kept sinking in the mud. So they actually laid tree trunks side by side and lashed them together and built this corduroy road so they could get the trucks in to establish the cemetery. And all that happened in the, in the winter of 44 and early 45. It was the worst winter they had had in 50 years. Before we talk about your journey uh, to walk through your father's footsteps, you mentioned that after the war, he, he stayed. He stayed over there for a while. So tell me a little bit about that. And then it sounds like he got connected to a young lady while he was over there. Sure. Um, so as, a, as we had mentioned, dad was a licensed funeral director in Michigan. And when the war was over, he received orders. He was discharged, came back to the United States. And we believe his intention was to become a funeral director in Pennsylvania. But at the time, there was no reciprocity between PA and Michigan, and Pennsylvania would not recognize his Michigan license, funeral director's license. 
and he took one course in Philadelphia, but there was just no money to take other courses to be licensed as a Pennsylvania funeral director. So he made application to the US government, back to the Civil Service Commission, to be uh, an embalmer supervisor back in Europe. And they accepted his application. He was sent to Paris and helped establish the US mortuary at a military hospital in Paris. Because for several years after the war, they were still finding bodies mm -hmm. and they were still pulling them out of the woods and the fields and they were coming back other places, but certainly to Paris uh, to, be to be properly handled. So dad worked as a civilian. He was able to wear a military, they let the civilians wear a military uniform, but no insignia. Hmm. So he wore the US Army uh, uniform, but he had no insignia. He worked as a civilian from after the war until 1940, I think to the end of 1948. Yeah, January of four, or I'm sorry, December of 48, that's correct. Okay. And during that time, uh, we found orders where he, he had traveled uh, as far as uh, Morocco. We think there was a plane crash in Casablanca and there were secret orders. We have, we have a copy of the orders, but no other information. And there was some furniture in our parents' house, some end tables and a coffee table. That's that big table that mom had in her room. Yep. We think that came back from Casablanca. We think dad yep. picked that up when he was there. It did, I know it did. There was some plane crash that he was sent to investigate and recover the bodies. But it was whatever it was, it was a secret mission. Okay. And we don't know any more than that. When and where do mom and dad meet? Pardon? When and where do your parents meet? Well, maybe let me back up Go a ahead. little bit more, you know, prior to that. Jim had talked about the American Cemetery in Margaret and Holland. Initially, they started the cemetery location about 20 miles from where it is today. And it was close enough to the German lines that the Germans saw this heavy equipment in there that they brought in, bulldozers and other equipment to move dirt. And they thought... It was a forward operating base, and they began to shell it with 88s, German 88s. And the colonel got in touch with my father and told him to shut down the operation because uh, he didn't want to lose any men and was told to search for a new location. So there was a Captain Joseph Showman that uh, was directly under my father uh, that, that um, my father sent him out on a mission to find an appropriate place. And he searched all over the area in Limburg province and came back. And uh, we and the reason we know this to be true is we found a book that was written called Crosses in the Wind. And it was written uh, by showman and uh, it's a pretty good account. And when we uh, searched the name Bailey in there, our father came up either seven or nine different times. And one of the first times he came up, is that showman stated that he found a location and had to go back to Captain Bailey, the Graves and Registrations Officer, not only the Ninth Army, but also the First Armies, First and Ninth Armies. And uh, he gave the order to begin the construction of the American Cemetery. And um, that also received a silver star, I'm sorry, his bronze star for the work um, that was done to the, for the construction of the American Cemetery at Margrotten. Because as Jim stated, the conditions were just so severe as far as the mud and the cold and, and the muck, it was just terrible. 
And they even had to go down along a riverbed to try to get stone to bring up to try to put in to get the roads so they could get vehicles in there. And so, um, yeah, two great books that we've uncovered. One was Crosses in the Wind, written by Captain uh, Shimon. He wrote that in, in, uh, after the war about the establishment of the cemetery at Margrotten. And the other one is this one that I have found. It's called It's Conquer, the story mm -hmm. of the of the Ninth Army. And that was written after the war. And between those two books, that they corroborate all this, all the information that we found. We found that all, all this is, is true. Yeah, all the all the little statements that Dad kind of made here and there along the way, as we found out and we got over there, uh, were just amazing. Now, you know, another another thing that we did is um, you know, Jim and mentioned breast and and dad. Uh, was there during the Battle of Brest. And from the reading that I did concerning the Battle of Brest, uh, a lot of the civilians, um, they were hiding in a large tunnel complex under the city. And I don't know if the Germans did it, if it was part of, of the battle or what happened, but somehow those tunnels were set on fire. And there was... 1,200 people that were just burned to death. And, mm. and, you know, they were like trying to crawl up on the steps and they died on the steps. And, you know, all those people had to be taken care of. And that may have been one of the reasons why, you know, dad was there, um, you know, and, and helped to take care of those initial casualties in, in Brest. And, you know, we, we couldn't get, we didn't go to Brest because the submarine pens are not open in, in Brest now, as far as, um, you know, visitation is concerned. So we went to Laurent, France, mm -hmm. and that's where we really began our trip. We flew from Philadelphia to Paris, took a train a good chunk of the way towards the coast, got off, rented a car, and then we drove a car for 2,000 miles through five countries in 14 days. And uh, we started in Laurent, France, and we had two reasons why we wanted to go there. We wanted to go see the submarine pens, number one, but the second and most important reason we wanted to go there was our mother served in the U.S. Army and the Medical Corps as a dietitian, and uh, she was sent over in 1946 to Paris, sometime in 46. And um, uh, her secretary, Denise Herbreau, um lives in Laurent, and my brother and I had the great fortune to meet meet Denise after our family had written back and forth for 70 years. Mom and dad had only ever seen Denise one time after the war was over. That was in the 80s when they were traveling in Europe. And we got to go to visit her in her small apartment and then got to have lunch with her. Uh, dad had already passed away. I called my mother on my cell phone. And those two talked like it was 1947 for an hour and mm -hmm. cried. And they just had the best time of their lives talking about how great it was. And I remember Denise mentioned about dad having to go to Morocco on a secret mission and bringing that table home. I remember her mentioning that. There you go. So she would have known her as Lieutenant Melna Farmer, correct? Melna Farmer, that's correct, yes. Mm -hmm. the, uh, so let's talk about the trip and the journey. And it sounds to me like that might be one of the most prized memories of the whole trip, just to be able to experience that. So the trip was with your mother as well. But so dad passes away in 2005. It's nine years before you guys end up on this journey in your father's 
footsteps in 2014. Guys, I can only imagine it's a lot of work, a lot of research to kind of get it all teed up to get everything ready to go. How, how long was the process to to build up for this trip before you finally took it? Well, taking the trip was actually John's idea. I had I had uh, found the 201 file and I had already compiled a chronology of everything. And John said, we need to take a trip and go over there and follow dad's footsteps across Europe. See, so John, good idea, right? John does all the hard work and you're like, let's go. Right, right, let's go. Uh, Brian, I want you to understand at that time, I owned a travel agency. So right. that side of it was really pretty easy. Yeah. We had one of our uh, travel counselors, Jim kind of wrote the itinerary for us and I, we gave it to her and she figured out where we needed to go, how we needed to do it and how much time kind of at each place. And we plugged in all the places that we were pretty close uh, at all the places where dad was. So that was really kind of easy. John, you know, you know, my, you know, my father, right? Super oh, yes. organized, loves a good travel itinerary and binder yep. to carry yep. him along the way. I'm sure he would have appreciated this. All right, Jim, yep. tell me, tell me all that that goes into it and, and how you kind of get ready and, and how you get everything organized. So I, uh, I grabbed some maps of, of France and Germany and the different countries and I identified places where we wanted to go. We knew we wanted to visit all the American cemeteries, some of the German cemeteries that were in dad's orders. We wanted to visit some of the, some of the uh, historic uh, battle sites. We wanted to go to the D-Day landing sites, to the beaches. Uh, wanted to go to um, some of the museums in France and in Luxembourg and in Belgium. So we just kind of, I laid maps out on the table and I put little sticky dots on all these places on the maps where we thought we wanted to, wanted to stop. And we just sort of laid out an itiner a travel itinerary. John helped us get hotels at the various places and how long we were gonna stay at each place and made arrangements for the plane tickets and the train and the rental car and off we went. And, but and I ask I you guys about the places you hit, John, right, and, and memories along the way. But ultimately, how long days-wise, how many days were you there? And, yeah. and you said it, but remind me, how many miles did you ultimately end up covering? Yeah, well, we um, – let me just kind of back up. And first and foremost, um, we needed to thank our wives because our wives let us leave, leave our families, even though our families were grown, for, for two weeks. Uh, Jim's, Jim's children are older than mine. Uh, by 15 years, but still, uh, you know, we had to leave our wives at home for two weeks and they were very understanding and very supportive of, of that. So uh, we we went through five countries um, is what that dad had served in. And I have to say the military is very methodical in their orders with, you know, knowing the dates and, and, and the places where they enter and leave countries, which I think is incredible. Um, and then we, we, like I said, we rented this little car and we drove a little over 2000 miles in 14 days. Uh, we ended up back in Munich, um, and then we we got rid of our car, and then we flew home from Munich back into Philadelphia. It's got to be incredibly powerful, uh, prideful, but yet emotional moments as you visit yeah. these places where just this heavy yeah. action uh, took place. Take take me into it, guys. What are yeah, some of the highlights? We found it especially emotional at the American cemeteries. You look out at these beautifully immaculate cared for grounds and the rows of 
of grave markers, the crosses that are there by the thousands. And we went cemetery to cemetery. And it's just, it, it is, it is emotional. It is humbling. It just, it, it's hard to, hard to find the right words to describe. And then perhaps the most emotional was we went to the prison camp at Dachau in Germany. And that it's now a, a, a museum and it's part, part of it is well-preserved. And that too was very difficult to go, to go through, to realize that was not a, Dachau was not a death camp, it was a work camp, but there were still many thousands that died from overwork, exposure, hunger, disease. That was not the place where they were, uh, there weren't many that were actually killed there. They died there from other reasons, but there were Jews that were exported from there to some of the other camps where they were exterminated. That may have been the most difficult part for me emotionally was to realize what had happened. And, and I know that dad told us or told me, um, and, and again, dad lived three houses up the street from me in Spring Grove for many years. Jim lived in the Philadelphia area. So I had more contact with dad in his later years than, than Jim did. Although you know, he was, we always got together holidays, did different things for the kids and everything. But um, you know, I remember dad telling me that he liberated, uh, you know, these, these death camps. And, you know, they would go in there and the first thing they wanted to do was give them candy, give them food because these people were starved to death and they were coming up and they were giving them, you know, candy bars. And the, the camp doctors, um, you know, said no. Uh, and, you know, if you give them sugar like that or give them too much food, it's going to shock their system. It's worse for them than it is, you know, being hungry the way they are right now. we got to bring them back slow. So, you know, dad had to deal with all those, too. Not only was he dealing with the bodies of the American, the allied and the, and the dead German soldiers. He now had to deal with, with all the people that were interned in these death camps or these work camps. So, you know, he was having to help, you know, to, to organize those and get all those people buried and take care of that. So he had a, a monumental task as far as, you know, where he went, what he did and how he did it. Um, ironically, my, my brother and I were together on um, Tuesday of this week, and he brought me a photo album uh, that he had gone through and put in chronological order of, of both of our parents and a lot of pictures from uh, back in, in the 40s uh, when they were, you know, in Europe and, and before they got to Europe and basic training. And um, it's just unbelievable some of the things that, you know, they would see and some of the things that, that they would do. But I, I know one of the pictures that they had, I think it was marked 1947 or 1948, it showed my mother sitting on a wall and it was Mark Burgess Garden, and which was, you know, Hitler's eagle's nest. Mm -hmm. And now I can't imagine that was going to be open to the general public. But when dad went back over and worked in graves and registrations, he pretty much had a free pass to travel anywhere he wanted to go and do anything he wanted to do because of the, the work he had to do. So, you know, he met, met our mother over there uh, at an American hospital in Paris. He was setting up a temporary morgue and she was a dietitian in the hospital. She was born and raised in Montgomery, Alabama. And um, dad and his roommate, asked mom and her roommate out on a double date 
and dad went out with mom's roommate. Mom went out with dad's roommate. And they, the only reason the women went out with the men was as dad had access to the mortuary car. They always had a car and had gas for funerals. And they took them somewhere because then everybody was walking. You know, there was no gas, not much transportation, anything going on. So they could take them somewhere until the date was over. They switched. And it was kind of funny. And the photo album, as you go through where my mother was writing uh, on these photos, the first couple of photos said Fred Bailey, Fred Bailey, Fred Bailey. And then it just went to Fred. <laughs> as she kept seeing him more often. And they traveled all over Europe for during, I think, probably 47 and, and, and all of 48 for two years. They just traveled around Europe and had a great time. That's amazing. Uh, it's amazing the way it all uh, plays yeah. out. Really is. Yeah. But um, one thing, Brian, that, that kind of, um, as I think about this, one of the places that had mentioned uh, was Clairvaux. Mm-hmm. Um, and ironically, in some of these old pictures, he had pictures of Clairvaux. Um, and it's right on the Belgium border is where Clairvaux is. And Jim and I visited there. But ironically, um, I was cleaning out some old files in the basement of our travel agency. We had been in the same building since 1953. And I was cleaning these out and I found a letter stuffed in between a book. And he had written this letter from Clairvaux on February the 7th, 1945. And in the letter, he stated that he had visited there in November. And it was a beautiful small town. And this was a respite site for the American and and Allied armies for them to go and rest and, and get a little bit of relief from the war. And he was back in February And he said he couldn't believe the destruction. And he said he doubted that the city would ever be rebuilt. And here we come to find out Clairvaux was the first town that was shelled during Battle of the Bulge. That's where Battle of the Bulge started. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he was, I imagine, there on a respite for whatever in November. And then they probably sent him back to, they were still pulling bodies out that were frozen in the ground in February. Wow. Guys, General Patton have a, a role in this story somewhere? Sure, he sure does. Um, you know, the the um, I never really knew anything about Patton or even about the Army. Dad, Dad never talked or Mom never talked about, you know, at all. But I do want to mention, especially with Memorial Day, uh, my brother served in the U.S. Army and served our country. And I want to thank him for that, for his his service to the to, to the U.S. Army and to his service to our country. So thank you, Jim. But uh, I remember mom and dad took us to a movie theater in York and we saw the movie Patton. And I remember George Scott walking across the stage and when he's walking across the stage in front of that big American flag. Mm-hmm. And addressing his troops. Iconic. And somewhere after that, uh, dad just kind of casually mentioned that he buried George Patton. And I I just really didn't think about a whole whole lot of it at that time, because I was probably in my teens and really didn't think a lot about it in my early teens. But later on, uh, dad, dad told us the story that when Patton, you know, was killed in an auto accident in Germany, um, you know, they were going to bury him in Germany and they said, no, they're not going to bury such a great general in Germany. 
So um, Luxembourg uh, reached out and said, we will take him. His wife agreed to that. And he was transported by funeral train to Luxembourg. Dad had something to do with that funeral train. What specifically, I do not know. But I do know that he was, um, as with all American soldiers, and there's only one exception to this, as they fall, they are buried with their men, no matter what your rank is. You're just buried. You're there. So with that, um, George Patton was buried with his men. Well, tens of thousands of people came to visit his grave all the time, and they were desecrating all the other graves around, around the general's grave. So the decision was made to exhume his body, reprepare it, and then bury him at a different spot that it wouldn't uh, cause harm to any other graves. So they did that in 1948, I think, Jim, somewhere along there. But anyhow, uh, our father was, Captain Bailey, was in charge to exhume his body, reprepare his body, and, and uh, bury him where he rests today. And I did ask him, I said, Dad, did you bury him with his pearl pistols on? He said, yes. So my dad, our, our father, was the last one to close the, the lid on General George Patton. And at that time, the burial was at the back of the cemetery, but that is now the front of the cemetery when you come into the American Cemetery in Luxembourg. And Jim and I visited that spot. So we were there. That was one of our many, many, many stops that we made along the way. So, so Patton, he is the exception as a commanding general to be buried at the head of his troops. So they've redesigned the visitor's area and the viewing area uh, to his grave. So people aren't trampling all over the grass to get there. Yeah, there's some pre pretty important meaning behind that, though. You know, so sort of the exception to the rule, but yes. done out of ultimate respect and reverence for the rest that lay there. Because the last thing that he would have wanted would be for the resting place of his soldiers to be unintentionally treated that way, you know, because he was there. It's incredible. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. You just think about the, um, you know, the storied history of, of our nation and just the incredible, incredible role that this massive event, you know, World War II has on shaping the history of the world. You, you think about pure evil embodied in Adolf Hitler and what his ultimate goals were to do. Um, and I know there's a lot of pride in you men in, in your father's role in squashing that out and ensuring that that did not become reality. And, uh, and we do take moment here on this Memorial Day to remember the tens and hundreds of thousands who, who laid down their life for that. Guys, as you look back on it, as you look back on that, those 14 days, those 2,000 miles, to the best that you can summarize the, the meaning and, and the pride and in and, and the real um, sense of country and duty that, that came with it. Just just summarize it a little bit for me. Sure. I, I know we've both given a lot of thought to this. And I really believe that dad, dad falls into what Brokaw called the greatest generation, that there were there were millions that answered the call to serve their country, to help liberate the world from tyranny. And dad was just one of many. And 
he, I, we believe he rose to greatness like so many others did. I don't believe he was, he was great. I, I think he became great in our eyes. But so many, so many answered the call. So many gave and sacrificed, sacrificed their lives. And there were so many that came back injured and wounded, many that did not come back. Yeah, and as, as Jim said, you know, mom and dad never talked about it. Now, I know as we got together on holidays, and holidays were big for Memorial Day, Fourth of July, and Labor Day to our family. We always did a picnic with a bunch of families. And as I think back on it, all those families, all those guys served, mm-hmm. you know, some of them were majors, some were captains, some were lieutenants, and some were just just privates. But you know, they all served. But um, you know, um, a couple other things that that um, you know I, I I brought to mind is as we were kind of finishing towards the the end of our trip, um, two stops, the last two stops that we made, uh, we had a, a very close family friend uh, by the name of Jack Meeker. Um, and that may be a, another good one that we could talk a little bit and probably talk with our cousins about. And I really call them our cousins, our quasi cousins, adopted cousins. Um, Jack um, was uh, lived lived in Spring Grove with his wife Ray and their three children, and uh, he was awarded the, the Silver Star and the Purple Heart for what he did during World War II. But he was captured after crossing the Rhine River uh, and Patton's army, and was held in Heppenheim, Germany. And, and I had spent some time with Uncle Jack in his last year or so, would go visit him and he would reminisce about, you know, his, his days serving um, in Europe. And he was very explicit in telling me uh, about this building and where he was kept captive. And Jim and I pulled into this small little town in a rental car, Heppenheim, Germany. And um, we get out and I'm trying to figure out how to put money in the meter and a man comes along that's an older gentleman, doesn't speak any English. Um, and I sure didn't speak much in the way of German um, other than Danka. And um, another man came along and said, may I help you? And pretty good English. And we said, yes. And we were explaining. And I said, do you know where there's a German POW camp that was around here during World War II? I said, our uncle's was held prisoner there. He goes, oh yes. He says, Go down to the shell station down there a couple of blocks and turn left and walk a couple of blocks and you'll run right into it. I'm like, it can't be this easy. It just cannot be this easy. Mm-hmm. So Jim and I parked the car there. We walked two blocks down and we get down to the shell station and here stands this man. And we're like, how did you get here? So here he got on the bus and rode the bus down. He says, I take you over to where your papa was. I said, no, it was my uncle. And he's like, no, Papa, Papa, he kept saying. So Jim and I figured at that time, we'll just let it be Papa. We're not worried with it. So as I walked into that place, the hair stood up on the back of my neck because it was exactly the way Jack Meeker explained it to me when he was liberated on Good Friday, 1945 by General Devers from York, Pennsylvania, liberated that camp. And I just got done reading the book about General Devers. And it's a great book. And it had a, a paragraph in there about when they when they uh, um, liberated the camp. But we actually got to go inside. We got a book about it because it had been an insane asylum. Mm-hmm. And when they needed uh, the room for the American soldiers, which were officers, um, they just took the people that were in there, the Germans, and they lined them up against the, the wall and they just shot them all and buried them in a mass grave. There was 200 and some of them. So there's a, a graveyard behind there. 
So we got to visit there. And um, and the, the gentleman's name was Gerhard Lawson. I don't know why I can think of that after all those years, Jim, but I remember that. And we spent the whole day with him. We took him and bought him lunch. And we just had, he said, you know, you, you people saved us. You saved us. You gave us our freedom. And he was very thankful for what the Americans did. And he spent the whole day showing us Heppenheim, Germany, just a beautiful little village. Mm. And then um, from there, we went um, over to um, um, Nuremberg, to where the Nuremberg trials were held. So dad received orders to go to the Nor to Nuremberg to sit as a witness during the Nuremberg trials. And um, the night before uh, the Nazis were hung, uh, Goering committed suicide. And who do you think they called to go into his cell and remove him was Captain Bailey. So dad went in and removed him uh, from the cell after he committed suicide with a cyanide capsule. And uh, they held him overnight. And then the next day, uh, they actually hung him, even though he was dead, along with all the other Nazis. And then after uh, they were hung, they gave him to our father, and he took him down to Munich to a crematorium, and he cremated their their ashes, cremated the bodies, and he disposed of their ashes in the Isor River. Mm -hmm. Now, remember Dad telling me about the Isor River, and that was 30 years ago, before there was, you know, an internet and all the things that we rely on today, and, you know... Now you can Google and you can read about it, that their ashes were disposed of in the Isor River. And there's no record of that whatsoever because they didn't want them to become martyrs. So that was kind of the end of, you know, dad's military service is that he took all those Nazis, took them down and, and cremated them and disposed of their ashes. And the Isor River was really just more of a small creek. Mm -hmm. um, I know our mother told us um, sometime that dad had taken her over there many years after that. Uh, they had traveled through Europe quite a bit through the travel agency, and Dad showed her the exact spot where he did it, but she mm. couldn't remember where it was. Wow, so. guys, I can completely understand why um, he didn't talk about that that much—the heavy burden of all of that. But I'm so grateful that you men uh, are able to talk to me about it today and share it with our listeners. I think it's important. And you know what, guys, listening—I uh, know it's years and years and years ago, and it, and it feels like a distant memory. But we have to remember. We have to remember what happened. Uh, we have to take time to honor those who are a part of that incredible story, those who are a part of that greatest generation. I'm so thankful for you men carving out some time to share not only your father's story, but this extended story uh, about those years and, and all that went into it and taking time to to really think about and talk about this side of war, this side of what happens and what all goes in to that. And so gentlemen, I thank you so much for doing that. Jim, we thank you so much for you, your service to our country as well, for all that you did for us and for all that your father did for us as well. Guys, thank you so much. Yeah, and Brian, I just, I just wanted to mention in closing, uh, you can Google this book about the American cemetery, Margaret in Holland. It's, it's, it's uh, called Crosses in the Wind mm -hmm. by Showman. And uh, it, it's on half mark. Um, and you can just pull it right up and read it on the Internet. It's, it's an easy read and is a very interesting story about the founding of the American Cemetery um, in Margaret. Now, and I might mention on Memorial Day that uh, our father gave the order to uh, have the first uh, Memorial Day service there. And 16 generals came to that first Memorial Day service. He also ordered that uh, flowers be placed on every single grave. 
So they sent all the funeral trucks out the night before to 60 different villages and came in and put flowers on 17,000 graves throughout the night. So there's enough flowers on every single grave. And then local families have adopted those graves. And on the soldier's birthday or uh, Memorial Day or VE Day, there's flowers that are placed and they're under their third generations of Hollanders placing those on those adopted graves. So uh, that service still continues today. There's going to be on Monday, a service that's going to be held there that our father gave the order to begin. And it's my goal, and Jim and I have talked about this. We're going to take the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren we're going to go. Back, back one of these days, and we're going to take the whole family to Europe, and we're going to attend that memorial service in Margaret and Holland. Well, my last name isn't Bailey, but I'd be willing to put it on for a day to go with you guys on that trip. That sounds incredible. Jim, any, any final thoughts before we uh, wrap our, this up? Our this trip was, it was more than a vacation for us. Sure. Although we enjoyed the travel, of course, being together, but it was, in a way, it was paying a homage and a tribute mm -hmm. to all who served. And as we traveled across France, every place we went, there were American, Canadian, British flags. To this day, we're flying from people's houses and barns in thanks of the liberation. And every place we went in Germany, people are thankful and they're apologetic for what Hitler and the Nazis had done. Everyone we saw, and we told them what we were doing and why we were traveling, and everyone we saw said, that's not us. We didn't do that, and we're ashamed for what happened. So I, I think even today I have even more respect and more pride for those that served, for the trip that we made, the opportunity to visit the cemeteries and give our honor and homage to the families and those who are still there today. Absolutely. Jim and John Bailey, two brothers who followed in their father's footsteps on an incredible journey. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. Thank, thank you, Brian. Brian. Have a great day. They're My Jim pleasure. and John Bailey. Their dad was Captain Fred Bailey. And I'm Brian Jodas. This has been Pick Up the Six Podcast.